So we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 4, 23 to 31. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, I thought I'd start by talking to you about having children. Now, there are lots of wonderful things about having kids, particularly young kids. They bring a lot of joy and happiness, a lot of delight, but I think it's fair to say they do also bring a lot of frustration as well. If you spend any time with kids, you'll know that they love to show you that they are independent, that they can do things on their own. If I'd had a quid every time one of my girls had said to me, no, I'll do it, I'd be a pretty rich man by now. Now, as a parent, particularly of younger kids, you get pretty good at learning to say, why don't we do it together? We can do it together and that way it'll be much better. But that's often not enough for them. They want to show you that they're independent. The problem with this is that often their desire for independence exceeds their actual ability. I'm going to show you a picture. Grace, could you bring up the first picture for me? This picture represents for me one of the most wonderful and frustrating things you can do with young kids. It is the mega bubble wand. The mega bubble wand is wonderful because on the one hand it's relatively cheap and it teaches your kids to enjoy the simple things in life. But all parents will know that there are negotiations which come when you get one of these mega bubble ones. Darling, I'll keep hold of the mix and you can have the wand. That way you won't spill any. It'd be much better. I mean, that sounds perfectly reasonable, doesn't it? Well, not to a three-year-old, it doesn't. No, I'll hold both. Look, <laughs> I'll, I'll keep hold of the bubble mix and then you won't, no, okay, okay. Uh, look, it'd be much better because I don't have any extra mix. So if you spill it, I don't have any, no, I'll hold both. Now, some lessons can only be learnt through failure, I think, and this seems to be one of them, because I'm sure most parents will know you sigh deeply as you hand over the bubble mix and the wand, and then your young one wanders off to have fun. The only real question then is how long is it going to be before your child comes back with puppy dog eyes and an empty thing of bubble mix, <laughs> thinking, have you got any more? No, I told you that beforehand. What's really frustrating is 
they don't learn. The next time you get one of those bubble ones, you're going to have the same negotiations all over again. Who does that? Well, actually, most of us do. Because as a Christian, we know that God is bigger and stronger than us. The Bible teaches us that we can do nothing in our own strength, but constantly we try. Instead of bringing our problems to God, we often ignore him and proclaim, like a three-year-old, no, I'll do it. This morning, as we look at Acts chapter 4, we'll see the early church bucks this trend and they show us the way that we should respond. When oppositions and trials come, they don't hold a strategy meeting or get together to discuss their different options. They pray. They don't try to fix things in their own strength. Instead, they come before the Almighty One and ask Him to give them what they need. We're going to look at what they prayed this morning under three points. So firstly, who God is and what he has done. Secondly, pray the Bible. And thirdly, pray for boldness. Now, before we jump into their prayer, let's remind ourselves of what's happened in the run-up to this passage. Beginning in chapter 3, we saw how Peter and John going into the temple in the name of Jesus miraculously healed a man who had been disabled from birth. Now, in response to this, in amazement, a crowd of people gather to come and see what's happened. And Peter preaches to those people. He preaches that they need to repent and turn back to God. Now, the religious leaders at the time hear this message and they are furious at what they are saying. Like Daniel has reminded us this morning, they, they put the, uh, Peter and John in prison. The next day they reluctantly release them and warn them and threaten them, you must stop preaching in the name of Jesus. The verse 23 picks up events at this point. It says, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, now what would you do? I'd probably suggest we scale things back a little bit. Maybe encourage more of an underground movement for a little while. Perhaps hold a strategy meeting. Well, the first church don't do any of that. Instead, look at how the verse continues. They raise their voices together in prayer to God. And what a prayer they prayed. They don't start with how big their problems are. Point one, they begin with who God is and what he has done. The prayer begins in verse 24 with these words. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. One of the things I used to really enjoy in the police was taking out an unmarked police car. I remember on one occasion taking one out and I was driving through Brixton and as I came down quite a busy road, there were two cars that were blocking the road because the occupants had decided they were going to stop and have a little chat. As I pulled up, I thought I'd give them a few moments, but it quickly became apparent they didn't care about the traffic queues that were building up on either side of them because they were talking. So I gave them a friendly little honk of the horn to hurry them up. Now, they did not like that at all. 
occupants of both vehicles started getting out and there were some pretty big angry dudes who were getting out and started walking towards our car. They did not look like the kind of guys who were coming over for a friendly chat. Now under any other circumstances I'd have thought this is it, I'm about to get filled in and my car's about to get smashed up. But I knew something that they didn't. They weren't just walking up to little old me, they were walking up to three armed police officers who would not take very kindly to being threatened. As I flicked on the blue lights and we stepped out of our car, their faces were an absolute picture. <laughs> Peter and John here were being threatened by some very powerful people. Humanly speaking, they had a real reason to be afraid. But rather than, uh, but rather than being... Um, beginning their prayer by talking about the opposition they were facing or the size of their problem, they instead began by focusing on the size and power of their God. To the world looking in, they were just a couple of unschooled ex-fishermen from a backwater town in Israel. Yet they were not alone. With them was the one who had created and sustained the entire universe. An awful lot of our worry and anxiety as Christians boils down to a lack of perspective. We focus on the size of our trials and our problems, which for many of us this morning are not small. But we have a God who is bigger. We have a God who is in control. Now in one sense that seems quite simple, doesn't it? To know a life of contentment, fix your eyes not on the size of your problems, but on the size of your God. But let's not kid ourselves. That's one of the most difficult things we are called to in the Christian faith. I failed to do it countless times every single day. This is why the disciples prayed. They could see that this was not a fight that they were going to be able to win on their own. So they turned to God in prayer. They asked him to help them. When we face a situation where our problems seem big and God seems small, then we need to pray. We need to pray that what the Bible teaches us and what we know in our minds would become a heartfelt, lived reality in our lives. We need to pray to do that, to pray that even in the midst of a storm of life, that we would see that God is still good and that he is still in control. Look at the title they use to address God, Sovereign Lord. They are affirming that God is not only big and powerful, he's in control, he runs things. They'd have been basing that on passages like Lamentation chapter 3, which says, who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Now many of us struggle with this truth about God. If he is really in complete control, why do so many bad things happen? And if he's in control, does that mean I actually have any control? We kind of create this theological conundrum that we can't solve. Well, in this prayer, the disciples don't delve into a theological debate about how we can reconcile the apparent tension between, on the one hand, God's sovereignty, and on the other, human responsibility. Instead, 
They retell a story, a true story, which demonstrates that both these things are true simultaneously. Look at verse 27 and 28. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Sinful men acted sinfully in conspiring against Jesus. The speeches that we've already seen from Peter in the book of Acts show us that what they did was wrong and they need to repent for what they did. Peter affirms human responsibility. But then look at verse 28. He also acknowledges that this was not outside of God's control or his plan. They did what God had decided beforehand. For them, God's sovereignty was not an issue to be debated. It was a truth to be celebrated. If God is able to take the most wicked thing that men have ever done, the brutal crucifixion of the author of life, and use it both for his glory and his people's good, then he can and will do that again. The religious leaders of the time were acting sinfully in persecuting God's people. But God was still in control. When the early church looked at the cross of Christ, they not only saw the means of their salvation, they saw that even when it looked like all was lost, even when it looked like defeat, it was all part of God's glorious plan to redeem a people. Friends, when life feels like defeat, when darkness feels overwhelming, will you lift your eyes from the darkness to the source of all light? Will you look at the cross and see not only a God who loves his people so much that he is willing to die for them, but a God who is always in control and who works all things together for his glory and the good of his people. Really believing that changes everything. Even the apparent small things in our lives take on all new meaning. When you're running late for a meeting and you hit a traffic jam, will you remember that this is not somehow outside of God's plan? He's in control, and if you're one of his people, it's actually for your good. Now that doesn't mean that life will always be easy or comfortable. Instead, it means that sometimes he will bless you, not despite hardship and pain, but through hardship and pain. In those times, will you, like the early church, rejoice in the sovereignty of God? My second point from this prayer is that they pray the Bible. Now we've seen already that they begin their prayer by declaring who God is and what he's done. But when faced with such difficult circumstances, when faced with such threats, where do you go from there? What do you pray next? Well, if you're ever unsure what to pray, the early church gives us a great option. In verse 25 and 26, they pray the Bible. They don't just quote the Psalms, they turn them into prayer. 
as they speak out God's word, they not only find truth, but they find assurance. Psalm 2, which is what they're quoting here, was a prophecy written a thousand years before what was happening now, in which it was predicted that the Lord's anointed would come to earth and when he did, he would be persecuted. They saw this being fulfilled in the life and death of Jesus. He came from God, Jesus came from God to rescue and he was not only rejected, he was killed. Now this changed the way in which they saw their own situation. The words of Jesus must have been ringing in their ears. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. As they, saw, as they prayed this psalm, they saw the opposition they were facing in a new way. It wasn't evidence that God had left them. Instead, it was that they were preaching the same message as God's anointed one, hence meeting the same response. Let me ask you two questions this morning. Firstly, are you allowing the Bible to shape your prayers? All too often, I care way too much about my own reputation and about my own comfort. And all too often, that's reflected in the things that I pray about. I pray more when I feel like those things are being threatened in some way. When you look at the prayers in the Bible, you will see again and again that they are far more interested in God's reputation than our reputation. And they are far more interested in our spiritual health than our physical comfort. Just listen to this prayer from Philippians chapter 1. It will come up on the screen behind me. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Are your prayers being shaped by the Bible? Secondly, has the Bible shaped your expectations? As the early church prayed, they were reminded that opposition was to be expected as a follower of Jesus. All too often, as I said, my prayers are about being comfortable now. The Bible tells us again and again that we should expect difficulty now, but glory later. When we grasp, that th when we grasp this and hardship comes our way, instead of our first question being, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Perhaps we will pray, God, please give me the strength to endure this difficult situation. Help me to see that you are in control and that you are working for your glory and for my good. Now, up until this point, the believer's prayer has been about declaring who God is and what he's done. It's been about praying the Bible. It's not until verse 29 that they actually get to the thing that led them to prayer in the first place. Verse 29 says, Now, Lord, consider their threats, there being the religious leaders of the time. I mean, what would you pray next? Protect us from physical harm. Maybe keep us safe for a change in the leadership at the temple. Well, the early church don't ask for any of those things. Instead, point three, they pray for boldness. Verse 29 continues, Enable your servant to speak your word with great boldness. 
perhaps because they've been reminded that opposition is to be expected, they don't immediately ask for it to stop. Instead, they pray that they would speak what they know to be true with boldness. Our passage ends in verse 31 with God answering their prayer. It says this, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now what a wonderful verse to finish on, on Pentecost Sunday. Today's 50 days since Easter Sunday and the day where around the world Christians celebrate and remember the time that God poured out his Holy Spirit on all his believers. Now whilst Jesus was still with his disciples before his death and his resurrection, he warned that he would leave them one day but that this would be for their good because when he physically left, he would then be able to pour out the Holy Spirit upon them. Now, if I'm honest, I've always been a little bit sceptical about whether that's actually true. I know that it's important and a great thing to have the Holy Spirit inside me, but wouldn't it be better to have Jesus here physically? Being able to ask him all those questions that we have, being able to see him, wouldn't that be better? I don't think I'm alone in thinking like that. And I think that that is one of the reasons that God gave us the book of Acts, to prove he was right. I mean, you only have to look at the lives of the disciples. Before Pentecost, they had spent three years with the physical Jesus and they constantly misunderstood what he was telling them. On the night he was crucified, most of them ran away. Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times. The transformation in them after Pentecost is incredible. We're only four chapters into Acts and we've seen preaching which is full of authority, full of passion and full of understanding. We've seen signs and wonders and we have seen boldness. This is all a work of the Holy Spirit. So I want to finish by exploring a phrase that that is used in verse 31. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now what does that mean? We know from chapter 2 that the disciples had already received the Holy Spirit. So if they already had the Spirit, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? I remember hearing when I was younger that Christians are a bit like a bucket with holes in. And when we receive the Holy Spirit, he begins to leak out of us over time. And we need to go back to God to ask for a top up. I mean, that's just not biblical. Paul says in Ephesians chapter one, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Paul tells us that when a person becomes a Christian, they receive the Holy Spirit irreversibly. He is our deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. If he were to leak out over time, that's not much of a guarantee, is it? So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, a right understanding here begins by seeing that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not just some sort of spiritual liquid what does it mean to be filled with a person or full of a person? Well, think of a young couple who are head over heels in love with one another. You might ask, you might describe them as being full of one another. You might ask, 
How's Jim getting on with Jenny? He's full of her. She's all he ever talks about. The preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this. To be filled with anything means that it takes possession of us. To be filled with the Spirit means to be controlled by him. He controls our thoughts and our minds, our emotions, our feelings, our desires, our words, our actions, our everything. To be filled by the Spirit means to be gripped and shaped by him. But how do we know when that's happening? Well, look at what happens to the early church after they are filled in verse 31. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Friends, the Spirit brings power and boldness. He enables miracles. He acts in ways which we find very difficult to explain or understand. But here we see his passion. What's another title for Jesus? The Word. What's the Word all about? Jesus. Any way you slice it, this verse shows us that the passion and joy of the Holy Spirit is to embolden those he fills to talk about Jesus. When the early church faced opposition, the first thing they did was recognise that they are weak, but God is strong. So rather than try and do things alone, they came before God in prayer. God answers their prayer by filling them with the Holy Spirit, who enables them to speak about Jesus boldly. They're not talking about Jesus because they want to feel morally superior to those around them or for the sake of their own reputations, or because they gain some sort of financial reward out of talking about him. In fact, for most of the disciples, it cost them their lives. They do it because the Holy Spirit stirs their hearts to such a degree that they cannot keep the good news about Jesus to themselves. Because as they look at the world, they see that the answer to all of our problems to all of our unfilled desires, to all of our hurt and our pain, to all of our isolation is not found in a set of ideas, but it's found in a person, in a risen and ascended saviour. A saviour who through the cross rescued a people from the curse of death and a saviour who will one day bring restoration and peace to his people forever. The mark of a spirit-filled church is a church that talks boldly about Jesus. Will you join me this morning in praying that more and more we would become a church like that?